0: Well, we're continuing in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're up to chapter 7 of Matthew. And I said when we started chapter 5, that this really is the manifesto of the kingdom. We just look back there to Matthew chapter 5. Um, we've had the introduction to the Gospel uh, in Matthew 1-4, to the birth of Jesus, the genealogy of Jesus, his temptation in the wilderness. People start to follow him, and they all come together up the top of a mountain, <clears throat> and he starts talking to them about what the essence of his understanding of the good news of the kingdom really is. And I made the point when we looked at Matthew 5, that the essence of this good news is actually good news about a life that you can live now. And we saw looking at the Beatitudes at the beginning of this whole speech, um, this is in Matthew 5, that uh, they start off, uh, by saying the blessedness results in theirs is the kingdom of heaven and then the, the rest of the, the blessings are about a future reward in the kingdom of God they will be comforted they will inherit the earth they will be filled they will obtain mercy at the day of judgment they will, be, uh, they will see God <clears throat> they will be called the children of God and then the blessings conclude again coming back to the present theirs is the kingdom so then, we saw that, in a sense, the kingdom life is to be lived now. Ours is the kingdom. And yet, of course, the kingdom in that sense, the, uh, the seeing God, face to face, etc., inheriting the earth, is still in the future. And so then, <clears throat> what we're reading here is the good news about how we can live life now. And that verse 1, of, uh, back in the Matthew 7 now, Matthew 7 verse 1, Do not judge so that you be not judged. Using, I think, the word judge in the sense of condemn, that's good news. That is good news. That's the good news of the kingdom life, that you don't have to judge people. Not only you don't have to, you must not judge in the sense of condemning people. And if only people would take that seriously, they would save themselves a huge amount of of grief. Now, the word judge, the Greek word translated judge, has got a wide range of meaning. It can mean simply to have an opinion, and yet it can also mean to condemn, to judge in the final sense. And of course, it's not that we are to be unable to tell right from wrong, that the word is used about how we must judge, righteous judgment, how we must show a sense of justice and of wisdom in how we interpret life situations that come across us. Um, But we are not to condemn, or else we will be condemned. And of course we are told in verse 2, With what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with what measure you measure, it will be measured unto you. That is at the day of judgment. So there is a direct relation between our behavior to people now, especially when it comes to judging them, that is making an opinion, having to make some sort of decision about a person, and the judgment that we will receive at the last day. There is a direct connection. We have this in Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer, uh, in yesterday's chapter, where we are to pray, Forgive me as I forgive those who sin against me. So then there is this direct connection between our attitude to other people's weaknesses now, and how we will be judged. And I feel like repeating that, you know, 30 times over and saying, well, that was the, uh, that was the talk for today. Uh, let's just go out and do it. There is a direct connection between our reaction to and response to people's weakness today and how we will be judged tomorrow. Now, this does not mean that we should think, Oh yeah, well, I'm a sinner, uh, okay, yeah, let's just uh, wave that, let's uh, scribble that one, let's turn a blind eye here and there. That is not the intention, of course. The intention is not that we should turn blind eyes, which is effectively to walk away from a situation. The intention is rather that we should consciously show grace, that we should consciously judge as we believe that God does and will do with us. And that is not always clearing the, the guilty. Uh, that's one of God's characteristics. Part of his name should be part of our name, as it were. Part of the, uh, the spirit and character of God, which uh, is to be revealed in us too. Now, he he carries this through in verse 3. Why do you look at the splinter that's in your brother's eye, but you don't consider the plank that is in your own eye? Now, splinters and planks are all made of wood. And if you like a beam or a plank of wood, is just a lot of little splinters. So the fact that it's the same material in the plank and in the splinter, I think, suggests that in anything that you may seek to condemn your brother for now you in fact have part of that in your own eye in your own weakness that the sin that you so earnestly want to condemn in your brother is in fact partially in you as well it's you know this is the whole theme of Romans 1 and 2 that that's why I think Paul starts off talking about lesbians and all kind of uh, sexual perversions. And you think, why, Paul? He's talking about, you know, queer ideas and the rest of it. Why are you talking about those things that we frankly don't even want to hear about? And then he, he's trapped us. He's then right on the case and says, look, you who condemn others, you have done the same. We're like, no, everything within us cries out. I'm not like that. But the point is, in essence, you are. And you, know, you, you see the same here with this parable of the, the splinter and the, and the beam. Now, the difference between a splinter and a beam is that a splinter actually comes out of an eye naturally. In time, it passes. But yes, a beam has got to be actually taken out. Now, it's always cartoon-like. You know, because the, the bizarreness of a, a guy walking around carrying a beam right in front of his own eye um, is, is sort of bizarre. And there's this other fellow with a splinter, and he's like, let me let me take that splinter out. And he's carrying a beam right in front of his own eye. Now, yeah, as I say, it's, it's cartoon-like, and this is how often Jesus teaches, that he carries us along with him. We're thinking, yeah, that's bizarre. And then, yes, you are the man, or the woman. It is bizarre that you should think that you are so spiritually superior to anybody else. And I don't know if the Lord intended this, but don't forget he probably was a carpenter. He was a tecton, which may not have been a a worker in wood, but certainly a manual worker, a builder of some sort. So he would have known about carrying beams. The odd thing is that this uh, cartoon image is of somebody carrying a beam horizontal right across his vision so that he can't see anything trying to get a splinter out of someone else's eye but the same Jesus who constructed this parable spoke very often about carrying a cross which is really a beam of wood don't carry it horizontally so it blocks your vision but put it on your back and crucify yourself upon it rather than being so caught up with trying to correct other people. Now, he goes on to, uh, I think, uh, talk in the same context, when he says in verse 6, Don't give what is holy unto the dogs, neither cast your pearls before pigs. Now, that seems to be out of context, but I don't think it is, because Jesus isn't just throwing out disconnected pieces of wisdom here. There's a connection here. Uh, but, you know, he, he's developing themes as he talks. Now if we take that verse 6 as meaning <clears throat> don't spread the gospel to people who are I don't know, drunks, homeless, druggies uh, generally bad people because you know they might laugh at you that's a very convenient interpretation because we're all pretty shy, no matter how extrovert you are we're all pretty shy to talk about the gospel when it comes to it. And we might love that verse, because it sounds just a very good uh, justification for our shyness in preaching. Oh, well, I mustn't throw my pearls before pigs. But that cannot be the right interpretation. For one thing, we are to have a heart that bleeds for all people. And the parable of the, the Great Supper is really that we are to go to the very desperate people. We are to go to absolutely everybody, go into all of the world, to all of creation. There is no indication in that parable, nor in the Great Commission, that we are to sit down first and think, yeah, there are a bunch of pigs over there uh, sitting at that bus stop, or the people in that country, or that town, or that street, or these guys that I work with, no, you know, they're, they're just not gospel material. They're not God's material. I'm not going to tell them about the gospel of the kingdom. No, that attitude is quite ruled out I think by the continual encouragement of all these commandments to go and tell everybody without making distinction and this again I think is what Peter was taught when he has the vision and he's told rise and kill and eat and accept everybody and take the gospel to everybody not the people that you naturally think might be more interested and don't write anyone off as not good enough so I think biblically that can't be the right interpretation and the other thing is I suppose a personal thing that I used to reason like that and God taught me over the years that it was the very people who I would have considered not the right material who accepted the gospel and lived it and were faithful to it to the end. So. No longer can I, from personal experience, read that verse that way, no matter what it means, and it it is difficult to understand exactly what it means, but it can't mean that. It can't mean, well, have a look at your audience and the people you work with or, or mix with and decide that some of them are pigs and not even worthy to have the gospel. It can't mean that. I've been proven wrong on that so, so many times that I can dogmatically state that's not what it means. And as I say, there's all the biblical reasons to think that we must go to absolutely everybody. So what does it mean? Well, I want to make a suggestion. And it is maybe not immediately apparent in the uh, the English translations, but in uh, verse uh, 6 there, you've got this Greek word translated, cast. And it literally means to cast out. And it's very similar, but the, the word is basically the same as in verse 5, cast out the splinter from your brother's eye. It can't be incidental. And then earlier in this same speech, because Matthew 5, 6 and 7 is, is one speech, the, the same word is used, Matthew five thirteen: saltless salt will be cast out, that is condemned at the last day, and trodden underfoot. Matthew 5, verse 25, the unforgiving will be cast out. Those without fruit will be cast out into the fire, Matthew 7, 29. So that's in the same same chapter there, in, in the 20, sorry, 5, 29, sorry. Um, <clears throat> those without fruit will be cast out into the fire. And Matthew 5, 29 and 30 says that If our eye offends us, then we should pluck it out and cast it from us so that our whole body is not cast into Gehenna, into condemnation at the last day. And I take that to mean not that you should cut off parts of your body, but that you should look at those parts of your life that are making you go wrong, those sinful aspects of your life, and condemn them. Cast them out so that you don't get cast out into condemnation at the last day. So then casting out is very much the language in the Sermon on the Mount for condemnation. And we, we have that, um, as I say, proven there about five times throughout the Sermon on the Mount, that, that to cast out is to condemn. So when he says in the story that the man wants to cast out the splinter out of the other guy's eye, and he's told, no, cast out your own plank first. I think he's saying, you may want to condemn somebody for their behavior. But I urge you to condemn yourself first. Because Paul, I think, may have had his eye on this in 1 Corinthians 11, where he says that if we would judge ourselves, that is if we would condemn ourselves and he invites us to do this every time we think about the death of Jesus at the breaking of bread, if we would condemn ourselves, judge ourselves we will not be condemned, it doesn't mean we won't be judged, we won't come to the judgment seat we will, we must all appear there, but we will not be condemned if we have not condemned others and if we have condemned ourselves, if we say yes I should not be in God's kingdom because the wage of sin is death, and I have sinned. And so in the greatest paradox of all, those who condemn themselves, who cast out themselves, who recognize there's parts in their lives that are sinful and deserve condemnation, and recognize that in this life, they will not be condemned. And so he says you've got to condemn yourself before you can do anything for your brother. And yet he says don't give those precious things to the dogs. Don't cast out those pearls to the pigs, lest they trample them under their feet. Now, the idea of uh, trampling under feet, again, is in the Sermon on the Mount, earlier in Matthew 5, verse 13, where the rejected salt, that is the rejected believer, will be trampled under foot of men, condemned with the world. Now, putting all these things together, I think we're really onto something here. So, we are to condemn ourselves, and to cast out the the, uh, beam out of our own eye, and we are, however, to not throw, to not cast out our precious things to the world, to the pigs who will trample them uh, underfoot. I think what he's saying is that repentance is a deeply personal thing. You repent to God, not to the world. And that those uh, planks and splinters that you cast out of your life, like, you know, in Matthew 5, uh, cut out and cast away from you, the eye or the foot that offends, that is to, to be done privately to God, and those things are as valuable as pearls. That these are holy things. In the sense that personal repentance towards God and recognizing those sins and failures, recognizing we should be condemned and casting them away, as it were, casting them into the fire of condemnation, recognizing they deserve condemnation, those, that is pearls, they are so precious. So a guy standing at a bus stop or at a tram stop, smitten in his conscience about something and praying to God and saying, yes, yes. In that which I did, I was wrong, and I should be condemned for that. And that which I did deserves condemnation, Lord, and I recognize that, and I cast that out into, as it were, the fire of condemnation. I condemn myself, and by doing that, he will not be condemned at the last day. That, in the eyes of God, is so valuable. It's as valuable as pearls that of itself, that repentance, is, as it were, holy. Now, that's, I leave that with you to, to reflect upon. It is uh, difficult. No, no one denies that. But as I say, I don't think it can mean that uh, we are not to preach the gospel to people we consider to be pigs. And I also think that the, the connections of casting out which are particularly apparent in the Greek text, that theme that's running through the Sermon on the Mount, that casting out means to condemn, that has got to be given its due weight when we come to interpreting this verse. Okay, we've got time for a few more a few more thoughts on this uh, whole manifesto of, uh, of the kingdom. <clears throat> Just a passing shot in verse uh, 14. Narrow is the gate and And straightened or made narrow is the way that leads unto life, and there are few that find it. In Proverbs, where you have this idea of the two ways, it's all the other way round. Proverbs 15, verse 19, the way of the sluggard is blocked with thorns, but the path of the upright is a highway. You've got the same in 16, verse 17. And then Proverbs 22, verse 5, talking about the, the wicked, their ways are crooked. Uh, That's in Proverbs 2.15 as uh, as well. That the way of the wicked is is a very difficult, narrow, uh, bumpy kind of twisting and turning way. Whereas the way to God's kingdom is a highway. Whereas here in Matthew 7 it's all the other way around. That the road to the kingdom is the narrow way. And the way to death is the wide, broad highway that so many people are going down. Now, why is. what's the point of the, it all being opposite? Because I think that Jesus, so often in the Sermon on the Mount, is commenting on Proverbs, and I think he is commenting here. He's alluding to all those passages in Proverbs. And I think Proverbs is presenting life from God's viewpoint in this particular matter. That the way from where we are now to God's kingdom is straight, and it's a highway, and if you walk in God's way, then it's just plain sailing. It's straight in one sense. But from our point of view, that way seems very narrow, made narrow. And it's made narrow by God, in a sense. And it reminds me really of Balaam, and I wonder again if Jesus had this in mind, where his way was made narrow. So that he had to confront God. He had to confront the angel that was standing in front of him. He had to. And so that is, I think, what Jesus is is getting at. That really, from, from our perspective, this way is very narrow. But if you go that way, from God's perspective, sure. It's just a beautiful highway that you can cruise down, just go from A to B, direct and straight. It's rather like the way from Egypt to Canaan, to the Promised Land. It's noted there, but in in numbers, that it's just eleven days' journey. There was a beautiful highway, but because of Israel's failure, and also for their benefit, God led them a very roundabout way, not on the highway. Now. <clears throat> let's uh, move on now to the end where having given this manifesto of the kingdom the the good life that we should be living now the the good news of the kingdom that we can live now he says that in that day many are going to say Lord, Lord didn't we do all these wonderful things in your name and I will tell you I never knew you go away from me you that work iniquity so then they didn't know him and yet they did all the works they taught 22 prophesied in his name now this is a scary kind of thing I think for many of us that you can know the right things and even teach them to other people and do the right works but you can never know Jesus Yeah, it's like the Jews they spend all the time reading the Bible trying to sort out Hebrew words and grammar and the rest of it And Jesus says, you search the scriptures daily, but you don't come to me that you might have life. And that, I think, is the point of his final parable, where he talks about the person who hears these words of mine and does them is like the man who hacks down through the rock and makes his foundation sure. And then in the day of judgment, which is like the rain descending and the floods coming and the winds blowing, that house will not fall. Because it is founded on the rock, but what is the rock? Well, the rock is Jesus. this is quite clear that the rock is jesus Jesus personally he is the rock, and we are to be rooted and grounded and it 's the same word for to make a foundation that 's used here paul says in in love now if we don 't get down to the bottom line which is a relationship with jesus personally and that means in one word love then at the day of judgment the beautiful house will all come collapsing down and that's the connection i think between verse 23 when he says i will tell these people who did all these great works i didn't know you with, with the rest of, the, of the, uh, the parable that follows that he's saying that if you don't build on the rock which is me personally then you might have been building, 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 building doing all the wonderful works in my name and teaching in my name but you don't know me you don't have a foundation in me and this takes some people decades literally decades, it takes them even all their life to actually come to know Jesus. Now, we've got to ask ourselves really and seriously, do we really know Him? And this is one great thing of the breaking of bread, that we have this opportunity to take this bread and this wine into our hands and into our mouths, and finally all the abstractions become, in a little way, concrete and actual, a real piece of bread, and a real uh, taste of wine, that really he died for me. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me, Paul could say, and we are each to be able to say that. In fact, he died for us all. Uh, there's a, a mystery here, but it is nonetheless true, that we should be able to feel that he did this for me. And so I challenge you, how many minutes... I can't say hours, I fear, but how many minutes a day do you spend praying to Jesus? Of course we should pray to God, but we also pray to Jesus. How often do you think about him? How often do you talk to him in your mind? How often are you reading the Gospels? I'm not talking about the Bible, I'm talking about the Gospels. Do you have him continually before your face. You may say, yeah, well, I never met him. Yeah, David hadn't met him either. But he says, the way Peter interprets his words, I beheld the Lord, and he means the Lord Jesus, always before my face. He had this idea of Jesus continually in front of him. He must have built up that idea from looking at the prophecies and the requirements of atonement uh, and the shadows of the law of Moses and, and the, maybe the, the type of his own life um, but we have a far fuller picture we who live after the time of Jesus and have the gospel records is the Lord Jesus always before our face? I mean there's a tradition and it's not biblical but it's, it sounds to me a fair tradition that in the first century people had to learn the gospel of Mark by heart before they got baptised Of course, people were illiterate, uh, but the point is they had to keep on repeating it, because Jesus was to live in them. And when Jesus talks about, my words should abide in you, well, this would have been practically lived out by people repeating to themselves, reciting to themselves, the Gospels, the words of Jesus. This is the essence of being a Christian, that his words, that he, him, abides in us. And we in him. Now, this is the bottom line. Not all the politics of, and the humanity, let's say, of going to church, are belonging to a denomination. It's about you and him. And him and you. And that is the house, the spiritual life, that is built on a rock. And these people who did not have their lives built on that rock... Jesus says that actually they heard these words of mine, verse 26, and did not do them. And yet they built, beautifully. But they didn't do his words. Now, you, he condemns them, if you see what I'm saying, for sins of omission. Not sins of commission. He doesn't say, you an adulterer, you this, you're that. He says, you didn't do what I said. They thought that they could just omit large chunks of his teaching and we looked at one of them to start with that how you treat others and how you judge and decide about others is how the Lord is going to decide about you and if you just put a red line through that or when he teaches us to pray forgive us as we forgive others we just put a red line through that and sort of say "Ah, oh, no you know Not today. No, well, no, I I can't forgive that person. Or we act, no matter what we say, as if we do not forgive a person. Well, so you won't be forgiven. That's what he says. Now, if you just put a red line through those kind of words, and think, ah, yeah, well, I'm busy going to church, and I'm busy doing this and doing that. Like building your beautiful house, casting out demons in his name, verse 22, doing many wonderful works, prophesying, teaching in his name, etc., it's like building your house on a sand and the day of judgment will just knock it all over we must be Christ centered and the essence of Jesus was his death upon the cross and although we may not wear a physical crucifix around our neck, you know, in our hearts we ought to that he there dying for me this should be the reality that beats in us all the time.